Welcome to another installment of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the channel that compares what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So, um, we've all heard the story of the Grinch that stole Christmas, and unfortunately, woke, postmodern liberal theologians... Uh, they, they are they are like the Grinch that steals Christmas too, and we're going to be uh, listening to a well-known progressive liberal theologian slash pastor whatever a claim that um, that Mary wasn't a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus Christ. It's just complete utter nonsense, and we're going to uh, tear his arguments apart. Let's. How do the Gen Z folks say when something's like really mediocre? His arguments are mid. <laughs> these are the most mid arguments I've ever heard, and easy to debunk. But uh, if you're not familiar of where to go on how to learn how to debunk stuff like this, this is going to be a good resource for you. So let me whirl up the desktop and um let's see here uh, actually i hit the wrong button yeah, let me, there whirl up the desktop now this this photograph just took this not too long ago took this last week in fact um there's the entire composition uh, the aurora borealis was out not that great but it was out on the i think the 13th of uh, december 2023 and uh, went out with my son, and uh, yeah, we, we were up in Ardoch, North Dakota, and uh, and so I, I, I took this of that dilapidated old grain, uh, <laughs> grain elevator there in Ardoch with the Aurora Borealis. I kind of like it, but anyway, if you if you're interested in my photography, uh, and you'd like to see it, uh, you go to uh, Instagram.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Uh, Instagram.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Give me a follow. It's been a while since I've really been updating it. Hopefully, I'll have a little bit of time over the holidays to do that, but. Uh, Alas, that's not why we're here. So the, the reason why we are here today, the reason I've called you here, is to discuss this guy, the Reverend Dr. Caleb J. Lines. And um, <laughs> I mean, one of the most mid, mediocre, lame arguments I've ever heard, but standard fare among progressives who, uh, they're not into believing the scriptures, they're into denying the scriptures. And so this this guy is no Christian by any stretch of the imagination. We'll talk about why it's so important uh, to believe in the virgin birth. In fact, we'll go all the way back to the book of Genesis to explain why it's so important. But uh, <clears throat> here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try something a little bit different. I'm going to, his arguments are in two main thrusts. And so uh, the first thrust takes about a minute, a minute and five seconds. Second thrust, 55 seconds, or a little, actually another minute. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to break it up and uh, I'm going to play his argument and let it stand alone so that you can, you, you could soak in the blasphemy here and hear his argument without me tearing it apart. Then I'll tear it apart. <laughs> which is not hard to do. I mean, I kid you not. This is a this is just so mid. It's not even funny. In fact, this guy's super sus and everything he's about to say is really cap. You know what I'm saying? So, you know. <clears throat> but uh let let's do this. Brace yourselves for a, a minute and 5 seconds of just pure blasphemy. Here we go. Mary was absolutely positively not a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. That whole concept of virginity is kind of culturally defined anyway, but we know biologically that that is an impossibility, of course, in the 21st century. But even beyond that, listen to this. Matthew is trying to fulfill prophecy in Isaiah that he accidentally misinterprets. So Matthew is reading in the Greek but the Hebrew word that Matthew interprets from Isaiah as virgin doesn't mean virgin. It means young woman. And some theologians have tried to say, well, you know, all young women in that society were virgins, but that's a pretty large interpretive leap, one that I'm not quite willing to make. So Matthew misinterprets this and applies it to his story. But even all right, so there's the first there's the first thrust. 
<laughs> a complete litany of blasphemy. And and here's the thing. What What's the context? Where is he? This is supposed to be a Christian church. So this has ceased to be a Christian church. Uh, there, there's a phrase used in the book of Revelation regarding a synagogue de sanitas, right? A synagogue of, um, well, of, let's just say the nether one. <laughs> you, you gotta be careful what you say on YouTube because you know, otherwise they'll give me a strike. But all that being said, this is not a church and this guy is not a Christian. Um, and, and this is just a complete mess. And if you look at his TikTok account, I mean, this guy, I mean, he's as woke progressive as they come. And, and so you're going to note, he's scoffing at what the biblical text says. And he's making allegations or assertions without backing it up. And, and, and his only backup is easily uh, disproven. So let me rewind the video and we'll tear this apart bit by bit. And, uh, and then we'll talk about, you know, uh, why this is so important. Mary here. was absolutely positively not a virgin. He knows this with absolute certainty. Mary couldn't have been a virgin. How, how, how do you figure, sir? How, how do you know this? I mean, after all, I mean, you're the Reverend Dr. Caleb J. Lines. Um, you know, did you get your doctorate from DeVry? I mean, what, what, what seminary taught you this nonsense? You should get your money back. When she gave birth to Jesus. Uh-huh. That whole concept of virginity is kind of culturally defined anyway. I thought virginity was biologically defined. J just saying, because then you're gonna talk about how it's biologically impossible. But we know biologically that that is an impossibility. Of so no, he's playing with you know, two completely different definitions. Uh, one cultural definitions of virginity that he claims that he knows a thing or two about. And then the biological definition of, of virginity rules all of this out, a priori. Uh-huh, okay. We continue. Of course, in the 21st century. But even beyond that, beyond listen that. to this. Okay, I'm listening. Matthew is trying to fulfill prophecy in Isaiah. Matthew is trying. He's making an attempt to... Uh, Fulfill prophecy in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So how do you know this about Matthew? How do you know that he wasn't just recording the fulfillment of that prophecy? How do you know his intent? Because what you're saying his intent was is contrary to the intent of the whole thrust of the gospel of Matthew. Hmm. Okay. So he was he's basically kind of shoehorn in a, a definition. I see, okay. And, and your evidence for this is what again, sir? That he accidentally misinterprets. Oh, so he misinterpreted Isaiah. Got it. Yeah, let me back this up just a, a, just a smidge, okay? Because he's accusing Matthew of misinterpreting Isaiah. So listen Isaiah, again. that he accidentally misinterprets. Mm -hmm. So Matthew is reading in the Greek Matthew's reading in the Greek. But the Hebrew word that Alma Matthew interprets from Isaiah. The, the, the Hebrew word that he interprets from Isaiah. What about it? Alma. As virgin doesn't mean virgin. Oh, <gasps> are you sure? <laughs> I, I could say of you, uh, Dr. Caleb J. Lines. You don't know Hebrew. Uh, just, just saying. It seems to be a standard argument of mine lately. <laughs> but uh, uh, let, me, let me back this up. So this argument is mid and it's completely cap. And this guy is sus. Just saying. He looks like he's simping for the village people, but that's a whole other thing. So let's, let's take a look at this, shall we? And what we're going to do, I can now run my Logos software <laughs> in the Chrome browser, which is fun, by the way. All right, so what we're going to do, the, the, the text in question, the text in question is Isaiah chapter 7, specifically verse 14, and uh, we'll add a little bit of context to it, and then we'll do a little bit of word study, shall we? So, uh, so here's what it says. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. 
ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. Now, if you're not sure what's going on here. Uh, so what's happening here in the opening chapter of, uh, opening portion of chapter seven is that um, the king of Syria and the king of the Northern kingdom have joined together and they're threatening a military expedition down to the Southern kingdom. Ahaz is the, uh, the king of, of in Jerusalem. He's the king of Judah, the king of the Southern kingdom. And so he's worried. He's, he's legitimately super worried that uh, things are going to go terrible. And he's going to be uh, checking the water supply of the city of Jerusalem in advance of what he believes is going to end up being, you know, a siege. And so here, here's what it says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So their expeditionary force is not that far from Jerusalem, but they couldn't mount an attack yet against Jerusalem. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, they shouldn't be, but they are. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so Yahweh said to Isaiah, you go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, okay, so here's the thing. Ahaz is not faithful. He's not a believer in Yahweh. The, the guy's far from a believer and he does not walk in the ways of David at all. So Isaiah says to him, you be careful. You be quiet, you do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabael as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord Yahweh. So here's what God says. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And then he says these words to King Ahaz. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So Yahweh is saying, listen, you don't need to be preparing for a siege. It's this, it's this, this attack ain't going to happen. Okay. So again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. You ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, well, I will not. I ask I will not put Yahweh to the test. Now he's feigning piety when he doesn't even have faith at all. So, um, Isaiah said, well, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that now you weary my God also? Therefore, Yahweh himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now you're going to know, I'm reading the ESV here. Weird. The ESV is translating that word, Alma, that that uh, this uh, fellow, uh, Dr., what's his name again? Dr. Caleb J. Lines, that he claims uh, it doesn't even mean virgin. Well, that's weird because, you know, the ESV translates it as virgin. Are you saying that the uh, the translators of the ESV are wicked, evil people who are intentionally deceiving people? Um, well, no, actually, they're not, by the way. Um, so you'll note that the word Alma doesn't necessarily have to mean somebody who's a virgin. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But it can mean that. <laughs> In fact, when you use the Logos Bible software, which I do have, uh, the Logos Bible software has this wonderful feature that allows you to, um, to do word studies. And so when you select the word study that you would like to do on the word virgin, which happens to be in Hebrew, the Hebrew word Alma, hmm, isn't this interesting that uh, a possible legitimate translations for the Hebrew word Alma include virgin or virgins, a girl, uh, you, in other translations might say a maiden or a young woman of marriageable age or things like this. These are all possible definitions of 
the word Alma. Now, what's fascinating is if, if you're going to sit there and go, well, the ESV is engaging in chicanery. They're engaging in deception. They're just trying to make it look like Jesus fulfilled uh, this prophecy. That I would note, then, how do you explain the Septuagint? Yeah, are you familiar with the Septuagint? The LXX? Yeah, the Septuagint. Septuagint. All right, so L50, X10, X10, 70. Okay, so 300-ish years before Jesus walked the earth, 70 Hebrew scholars who knew Koine Greek and or the classical Greek of the time, they got together and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And what's really fascinating here is that when you read Isaiah 7, 14, in the Septuagint, 300 years before Christ, which means it's 2,300 years before the ESV. You know how they translated the Hebrew word Alma? <laughs> well, I'll show you. So here, here's what it says. Dia tuto dose curios autas human semeon idu he parthenos en garstri ehe kai teketai. Huion. <laughs> Sounds like Klingon. I, I, I don't know how to pronounce Greek. I'm just using the academic trans, uh, uh, pronunciation. But do you know what the word is here? Parthenos. Parthenos. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bring forth, will bear a son. That's what the LXX, the Septuagint says, and that was written 300 years before Jesus and was written 2,300 years before the ESV. And I would note the guys who put the, the uh, Septuagint together, uh, you could not accuse those 70 Hebrew scholars who also knew Greek of not knowing Hebrew. So I, mean, I told you his argument was mid and it's complete cap. I mean, it's just nonsense here. So that being the case, I mean, how would he explain that? And then I would note that when you read the, uh, you know, when you read the ESV, the ESV does something very interesting. And that is, is it uses two words interchangeably because they are interchangeable. Think of it this way, okay? If I were to, you know, in fact, let me do this. I'm just going to do this straight up. I am going to go to Google, and I'm going to look for thesaurus.com, all right? Uh, why is a thesaurus an important thing? And you know why it's an important thing is because when you do not use a thesaurus, you have a tendency to say the same words, the same word over and over and over and over again. So let's look for a word. We're going to look for the word language, language. All right. So I don't want to keep using the word language over and over and over again. So as my English teachers and professors have taught me, it's a good idea that when you're writing an essay or something like this to use synonyms. And this is what a thesaurus is good for. So language. So here are some of the synonyms of the word language. Accent, dialect, expression, jargon, prose, sound, speech, style, terminology, vocabulary. So if I were to sit there and say, you know, that person was speaking a different language. And in fact, I didn't understand their dialect. Have all of a sudden, have I done violence to the English language by using two different words that basically mean the same thing? Not at all. That's, that's just good practice, if you were to think of it that way. So that being the case, you'll note that when we look at the two words that are used in the Old Testament, they're, two of them are kind of used interchangeably. Um, one is uh, Alma, which can mean maiden or a virgin or a young woman of mar marriageable age. It can also mean a young woman who is recently married. That's, it could also mean that. But there's another word that the Hebrew uses, and that's Bethula. And Bethula means the same thing. <laughs> in fact, watch this. Okay, so in Genesis 24, 
In Genesis 24, we have a wonderful account. In fact, let me read this. Now, Abraham was old, very well advanced in years, and Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But I will go to, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Uh, The servant said to him, well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. So then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, uh, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac." And by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcha, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The woman was very attractive in appearance, and she was a maiden. Now, interesting thing here. The Hebrew word for maiden here is uh, Bethula. Yeah. Shouldn't that mean that she's a virgin? And you'll note some translations will translate Bethula here as virgin. The ESV translates it as maiden. And both are synonyms to each other. That's the idea. They, they are synonyms. They mean the same thing. So she was a maiden with who whom no man had known. So by the way, you know, uh, a maiden whom no man has known, that would make her a virgin. And so I I would if I had to speculate how the conversations went in the ESV translation committee, um <laughs> how you know they they sat there and go, well, how should we translate Bethula here? Because Bethula, I mean, one of its main meanings is is virgin. That being the case, this would be redundant. She was a virgin whom no man had known. Well, that's that sounds like it was written by the uh, the translation committee from the department of the redundancy department. So, <laughs> so they 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 chose to use an alternative, uh, an alternative translation, completely legitimate translation of Bethula, and they translated as maiden, whom no man had known, which means she's a virgin. So they use maiden and then and then the descriptor, which makes it clear she hasn't she hasn't been with a fellow. So she went down to the spring and filled her jar and then she came up. So then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all of his camels. This man gazed at her in silence to learn whether Yahweh had prospered his journey or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. 
Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcha, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped Yahweh and said, blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, Yahweh has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of Yahweh. Why would you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Uh, then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have said. He said, we'll speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. Yahweh has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male, and, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, Yahweh before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. And when then you will be free from my oath then you will come to my clan, and if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. And watch the phrase. Let the virgin, Alma, the one that Dr. Lines, Dr. Caleb J. Lines says doesn't mean virgin. The ESV translates it as virgin. Hmm. How much you want to bet the folks on the ESV translation committee know a lot more Hebrew than he does, right? So they translate it, Alma here as virgin. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink and who will say to me, drink and I will let, uh, and I will draw for your camels. Also let her be the woman whom Yahweh has appointed for my master's son. So here, here we go. You'll note that Alma and Bethula are used interchangeably because they're interchangeable. They're synonyms. And it's true that Alma doesn't have to mean virgin, but I would note that um, what kind of sign would it be to Ahaz that a, a girl gave, you know, got pregnant and gave birth to a child? That happens every day. Okay, so, so how is it assigned to a Haas if a, if a you know, all right, a girl of marriageable age is going to get pregnant? Whoop-de-doo, <laughs> right? So you, you get the idea, but let, let me read a little bit more of the story here because I don't want to leave this on a cliffhanger. I've taken the time to read this, so we should find out the resolve here. So again, uh, Alma and Bethula are used interchangeably in this text because they're synonyms. So let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say, drink and I will draw from your for your camels also, let her be the woman whom Yahweh has appointed for my master's son. And before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said, please let me drink. And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcha bore to him. So I put the rings on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. And then I bowed my head and worshiped Yahweh and blessed Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Laban said to Bethuel and, and answered and said, 
The thing has come from Yahweh. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as Yahweh has spoken. There's more to the story, but at least you know how, how that's going to end. And it ends very well. So coming back then here to, uh, to our Logos pro program, I would note, again, pointing out Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14, long before there were any Christians, the, the Hebrew scholars that put together the Septuagint use the Greek word Parthenos, and Parthenos means virgin. <laughs> That's exactly what the word means. It's like the, a woman, who, a girl who hasn't done the deed. That's what Parthenos means. So I, I would ask Dr. Caleb J. Lines, how does he explain this? I mean, if it doesn't mean that, then why did these 70 Hebrew scholars say that it does? You, you see, his argument is just, not only is it cap, it's just garbage. It's stupid. But there's more. Let, let, let me explain what I mean by there's more, okay? And that is, is that he claimed, remember he claimed that Matthew was trying to make it look like Jesus fulfilled a prophecy from Isaiah uh, and that he was re mis misreading the Hebrew and, and, and that, that he was reading it in Greek. Did you know that, um, did you know <laughs> that the uh, that um, Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew. Did you know that? Yeah. So Irenaeus against heresies, um, uh, book three, chapter one. He he talks about this, and um, let's see here his discussion. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's in this section right here. Here it says, right in the middle. Matthew also issued a written gospel. And Irenaeus is early second century. Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. <laughs> Oops, <laughs> Irenaeus, early second century, uh, who, was, uh, uh, who was discipled under Polycarp, and Polycarp was discipled under the apostle John in Ephesus. He says in the early second century that Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrew. Uh-oh, <laughs> that, that's true. He originally wrote it in Hebrew. And this is also confirmed by Eusebius. Uh, Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history. In fact, I, I need to see if I can find the, the, the actual place that this is at. Hang on a second here. This is book six, chapter 25. Book six, chapter 25. Uh, here's what Eusebius writes. Uh, Among the four gospels, which are the only indisputable ones in the church of God under heaven, I have learned by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was a publican, a tax collector, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it was prepared for the converts from Judaism and published in the Hebrew language. <laughs> I mean, well, that's kind of embarrassing, because, <laughs> you know, um, our uh, our uh, lying progressive here, he, he's just wrong on so many levels. Let me back this up to remind you of how lame his arguments are. Listen, listen again. Matthew is trying to fulfill prophecy in Isaiah. He's trying so hard, so hard. That he accidentally misinterprets. Oh, like the 70 who put together the uh, Septuagint, right? So Matthew is reading in the Greek, but the... Yet the church, the earliest church fathers say, Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew. <laughs> I'm just saying. Hebrew word that Matthew interprets from Isaiah. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, yeah. As virgin. Yeah. Doesn't mean virgin. But it does. That's one of its meanings, <laughs> and it's used interchangeably with Bethula in Genesis 24. And again, I just kind of point out that uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the scholars that put together the Septuagint 300 years before Matthew walked the earth, before Jesus walked the earth, they use Parthenos. So th there's more to this, but uh, you know, so far, this, this guy isn't doing so hot. I mean, he really is kind of 
uh, putting his foot in it. Now, I, I, I'm going to save this quote from Origen until we get to his second argument. But let me let me show you a little bit more here. Okay. So, in fact, I'm going to do this. I'm going to open up. I'm going to go to. Uh, we'll start. In fact, let me go this. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter one, and we'll take a look at how how Matthew's. Uh, gospel gets translated, uh, and and, <laughs> and there's reasons why it got it got translated the way it did. Matthew chapter one. In fact, hang on a second here. I'm 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 looking at the wrong. There we go. Matthew chapter one, and I want. Okay, no, not John. I gospels. There we go. Matthew one. Okay. So here's here's how Matthew's account goes. Okay. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, okay, they hadn't, they hadn't been together yet, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where we're going to talk about why this is important, okay? The very first prophecy of Jesus absolutely must have a virgin birth, or we're in trouble, okay? So if you remember in uh, Genesis chapter three, we have the fall of man. Uh, they succumb to the deceptions of the devil. In fact, what's really interesting here, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord uh, the more Lord God had made. Um, and, uh, and he said to the woman, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I would note that Dr. Caleb J. Line sounds a lot like the serpent in the in the uh, in the garden. Uh, it, I know the text says that she was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but we know that's not how things work. And plus, by the way, did you know that Alma, the Hebrew word for virgin, there doesn't mean virgin? Oh, <gasps> did God really say? You, you see, this this fellow Caleb J. Lines, he's playing the same game the serpent played in the in the Garden of Eden. And if you listen to this guy, you're going to end up in hell. So, so the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Uh, but the serpent said to the woman, oh, you will not surely die. In other words, God's a liar. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But uh, Yahweh Elohim called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And when the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And here it comes. This is called the Proto-Euangelion, and this is what's coming up. So the Lord Yah uh, the, the Yahweh Elohim said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here it is, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your Zerah, your seed, your offspring, and her Zerah her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The very first prophecy of Jesus Christ is found here in Genesis 3.15. And the promise is in a backhanded way given to us when God is cursing the serpent. And he says that the offspring of a woman, okay, between, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Jesus is prophesied there to be the offspring of a woman, not the offspring 
of a man and a woman. That prophecy points us to the virgin birth of Christ. And if that it didn't go down that way, we've got a big problem because if Jesus was conceived the normal way that you and I are conceived, then he has a sinful nature like you and I have. We've inherited from Adam and he can't be our savior. But the, prof, the prophecy says that he would be the seed of the woman, not the seed of a man and a woman. And those details absolutely do matter. So coming back, uh, the... the uh, <clears throat> Uh, the angel says to Joseph, do not, be, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here the angel would have probably used the Hebrew name for Jesus, which is Yeshua, which means Yahweh, Yahweh saves. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's what the text says. And so you'll note then that Jesus's virgin birth and that he would be God in human flesh was prophesied by Isaiah. That's kind of the rest of the prophecy uh, that, this, uh, that this guy left out. So Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, therefore uh, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, God with us, okay? Uh, virgin births kind of demand that, right? That's the whole point. Jesus is fully God, fully man. That's an important bit. But uh, this, 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 this fellow, um, he's just an unbeliever, pretending to be a believer. I have no idea why they made this guy their pastor because he shouldn't be doing anything in a Christian church anywhere. But let me read another text here because there's another cross-reference that is super-de-duper helpful. And that's found in Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, we uh, sorry, Luke chapter 1, we have uh, the account of the angel Gabriel coming and announcing to uh, the Virgin Mary what would take place. And here's what it says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Six months since what? Since Elizabeth had conceived John the Baptist in her womb. So, so the angel Gabriel was sent to Nazareth to a virgin. And here, you know, we're going to note is that uh, Parthenos is used here. And that can only mean a girl who hasn't done the deed. Uh, he was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now, interesting thing here, a lot of people need to consider this before we go too far. And that is, is that have you guys looked at the opening of the gospel of Luke and asked yourself this question, where did Luke get this information? It's important that we ask that question because here's what it says in the very opening paragraph of the gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account uh, to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may be certain concerning the things that you have been taught. So note here that Luke, his gospel, is compiled by interviewing the eyewitnesses. And you have to ask this question, where did Luke get this information about the angel Gabriel and the birth of Christ? Answer, he got it from Mary himself. Mary is the only one who would have had this information. And she gave, gave it to Luke. And that's, Mary is the source of what's written here in Luke 1 and 2. So in the sixth month, uh, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, Parthenos. And so here, the, the, the text is clear. Mary, the reason why she was called a virgin is because she was a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, Mariam. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the, to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, interesting, the ESV doesn't give us a literal word-for-word -word translation here. But with the announcement given to her by the angel Gabriel, she asked the question, uh, epi andra, andra u genosco. How will this be since I know I, uh, a man I do not know? Okay. A man I do not know means she has never done the deed. So they just take the four words, uh, sorry, the three, Andra u Gnosko, uh, a man I do not know. I have not known a man uh, and just translate it as virgin. So I would note here all the all the eyewitness accounts, because that's what Luke's is here. It's an eyewitness account, and Mary's an eyewitness of the birth of Christ and knew the circumstances full well of his conception. So um, yeah, this this guy's ideas just kind of fall apart left and right. So the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I I am the servant of, of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So uh, we've got the eyewitness accounts all, all bearing up and holding up the same thing. Uh, and so um, I would note that this guy's argument, well, we know that biologically that's just not how things work. Uh, the whole point of a miracle is that God got involved. You know what I'm saying? And God knew full well that it was going to be a virgin who would conceive and give birth to Christ because all the way back in the Garden of Eden, he said it would be the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man and a woman. So <laughs> just pointing all of this out here, just, you know, if we're going to do, if we're going to do any kind of killing, might as well do overkilling, right? So, I mean, this guy's arguments are just lame. They're mid, that it's just, I, the janky at best. Let's continue. It means young woman. No, it doesn't. Ataloma vinavrit. And some theologians have tried to say, well, you know, all young women in that society were virgins, but that's a pretty large interpretation. So, no, the, the, theologians, some theologians have said, well, you know, you know the, the, the young ladies who were not married were all virgins. Uh, back in the Hebrew time, times of, they better be. Uh, it, let's, let's, <laughs> this was not a time of girls shacking up with boys before they got married and stuff like that. Leap, one that I'm not quite willing to make. So Matthew misinterprets this. And how, how do you explain that? That the uh, 70 scholars who put together the Septuagint, did they misinterpret it too? Were they trying to make a miracle happen? Applies it to his story, but even so, you know, in the ancient world, it was very common. All right, here's the second part of his argument. Let me, let me play this out. Common to say that someone was born of a virgin as a tool to foreshadow narratively that they were going to live an important life. Let me give you some examples. Plato was said to have had a virginal birth. So were Romulus and Remus. The Egyptian gods Ra and Horus also said to have been born of virgins. The Buddha was said to have been born of a virgin. There's this wonderful story about an elephant entering his mother's side to impregnate her, and then the Buddha is born. But perhaps most significantly, catch this, the Roman emperor was said to have had a virginal birth. No. This will be easy to overturn too. When Matthew and Luke say that Jesus has been born of a virgin, they are putting him at odds with the Roman emperor from the very beginning of the story. They are saying, no, it's not the Roman emperor who is special. It's not the Roman emperor who is of God. It is Jesus, the Messiah. All right. So <clears throat> that's his argument. And uh, you know, how are we going to find our way out of this? 
We're going to start with this book. Okay, let me see if I can get it to focus on that. Hang on a second here. This book by Ronald Ronald H. Nash. And the name of the book is The Gospel and the Greeks. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. This is a wonderful book, a scholarly tome, which has great forwards by world-renowned scholars, F.F. Bruce, Yamaguchi, and others, that proves that Christianity did not set out to rip off or riff on on pagan themes, okay? The so th- this is your this is your homework if you want to figure out the like the deeper reason as to why. But there's a more kind of a more basic reason and it goes something like this, okay? Um so we you know there's a flag on the play and so the referee has come out and notes here. Uh, attempted proof using post hoc ergo propter hoc Okay, or as my wife likes to say, post hoc ergo poppycock. And post hoc ergo propter hoc means in Latin, after this, therefore, because of this. So flag on the play. This is actually a, um, a form of, uh, of, uh, of uh, you know, a logical fallacy. Just because an event, event Y followed event X does not prove that event Y was caused by X. So it's true that there were there were virgin uh, nativities in the pagan world of different uh, various people. That's absolutely true. But he hasn't proven that that Christianity used this because they were trying to basically borrow that same idea. And so the basic idea behind post hoc ergo poppycock, uh, you know, so is the Latin phrase post hoc ergo propter hoc means after this, therefore, because of this, the fallacy is generally referred to by the shorter phrase post hoc. Examples, every time that rooster crows, the sun comes up. That rooster must be a very powerful and important being. You sit there, you go, ah, I get it, right? So what he hasn't done is actually provide any substantial evidence that what the Christians were doing was on purpose and intentionally trying to rip off uh, the pagan uh, virgin narratives. Far from it. And this book disproves that concept altogether. So what I'll do is I'll put a link down below to amazon.com and uh, and this book. And if you would like to do a more in-depth study as to why Christians were not riffing off of the pagan world, uh, in fact, <laughs> Ronald H. Nash proves that in many cases, the pagan world was ripping off uh, Christ, uh, the nativity narrative of Christ. Uh, Gnostics have a tendency to do that, but I'll, let you, I'll leave that for you to, to follow here. So um, I would note, and that is, is that um, this fellow, he ain't a Christian. This fellow, he's lying to you. This fellow is not inculcating in you faith in Jesus Christ. He's instead creating in you doubt and a mistrust of God's word. And as a result of it, um, he's in direct contradiction to the scriptures. In fact, Christ warned us and the apostles warned us about scoffers who would rise scoffing in the last days. This guy's one of them. And he should be marked and avoided, and now you know how to undo, uh, you know, the arguments that are put forward like this. And you'll note these are there's no evidence that he's provided whatsoever that is actually valid that undoes the eyewitness testimony uh, that we find in the Gospels. The Gospel eyewitness testimony can be trusted implicitly. In fact, uh, in the new year coming up, uh, I will be doing an entire episode on fighting for the faith dedicated to the topic of, in the Gospels, do we have legitimate history and eyewitness accounts? That'll be early in uh, 2024. So hopefully you found this helpful. If so, all the information on how you can share the video is down below. And don't let uh, progressive liberal quackadoodles like this guy steal your Christmas joy because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just sent by the evil one to disrupt and destroy people's faith and lead them to some other place other than heaven. So if you found this helpful, information I share is down below. And uh, Merry Christmas to you all. And until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.